Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 4, uh, verse 12. Uh, and if you don't turn there, I'm probably going to see you um, because there's only a few of us here tonight. So I'll know that you're not turning in your Bibles. Yeah, um, that, that works. Um, if you were with us last week, um, you will remember that we studied the first half of chapter 4, which is where Jesus goes head to head with Satan, or the spiritual force of evil in the world. And um, as you'll remember, this is, we've got to admit, it's kind of a strange story uh, for our Western ears, uh, but it's actually a really profound story and really beautiful and ultimately really important uh, for our lives. And we saw that when those two went head to head, Jesus walked away victorious uh, and and from there, that point forward, Jesus is going to be acting from a place of victory, taking back from the kingdom of darkness what rightfully belongs to God. Uh, so almost a year has passed. You don't notice it in the text, but almost a year has passed between Jesus' victory in the desert and the very next verse that we're going to read tonight. Uh, and the, we get a few glimpses in other gospel accounts of what happens over the course of that first year. Uh, but for the most part, it's actually pretty quiet. Um, so there's kind of a year of quiet ministry with a few events happening. But now, today, things are going to get a lot louder and a lot more public as Jesus' ministry begins to really take off uh, and explode. So we're going to pick up in verse 12. It says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went up and he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, Jesus said, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Let's pray. Jesus, um, I'm just struck even reading this account right now of just the beauty that we have this text, that we actually get to read and reread um, the account of your very real, tangible human uh, life on earth. 
Uh, what a beautiful thing that it's been carried from this moment, from these witnesses, all the way to us um, sitting here in Spokane in 2016. So thank you that we have this. Thank you for the hope that it represents. Um, would you speak to us through it tonight, Jesus, in a way that we could never hear your voice and never sense you and know you apart from your scriptures? Would you actually um, take advantage of the fact that we have this and are reading it publicly uh, to grow us as disciples of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, Jesus, as I mentioned, started his ministry in relative obscurity. Uh, but when his cousin, John the Baptist, um, is arrested uh, for speaking out against those in power, Jesus suddenly uh, shifts his focus and moves from Nazareth, where he grew up, into the larger area of Galilee. So here's what this looks like on the map. Not a long distance one of you is excited about this map. <laughs> uh, not a long distance, but uh, this makes a significant difference in the life of his ministry. There are several reasons that he shifted into this region. Uh, the first is that John was arrested by Herod. And um, Jesus now moves into this region in response to that event, not to run from Herod, uh, but rather, it seems, to bring the gospel message to his doorstep. Uh, Herod ruled over this area in the Galilee, and actually uh, the city of Tiberias on uh, the, the Sea of Galilee was his sort of capital city and his headquarters. And so Jesus is going to move in here and start preaching the gospel uh, and, and starting a kingdom movement, uh, almost like within earshot of this capital city. Um, and, and so the, the full message that that was meant to send to Herod is a little unclear, it's kind of a bold move, uh, but what becomes increasingly clear is that one of the things this move does is fulfill prophecy. Uh, Matthew it is quick to point out where Old Testament prophecy is being fulfilled. And he said, that which was spoken through Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. This place is a land of darkness and it will see a great light. And perhaps, as the Old Testament occasionally hints, uh, this movement may even include the Gentile world or the non-Jewish world. So those are two of the reasons. Uh, but thirdly, uh, this region uh, is really an ideal place to launch an international, a world-shaping uh, movement. If you move to the next map, uh, it isn't clear uh, from, from just the, the plain map but uh, ancient Israel actually sat at the center of the known world. And so you can imagine that the three continents that kind of made up the known world, uh, Africa, Asia, and Europe, I almost forgot one of them, that was bad. What's the thing? Uh, but all of those continents that made up the known world all come together in ancient Israel. And, and so all travel and transportation by land would come through this very small region. Uh, all of the international trade routes came through, uh, in, in fact, all the international trade routes kind of come through the Galilee. This was kind of a refueling place on your way to different continents. And so that's one of the reasons uh, that Israel is constantly being conquered by foreign powers. Because everybody wants this spot. And, and so they're constantly being conquered by Roman powers, 
or Rome was the most recent one, by foreign powers. And, and right now, it's under Israel's control, but Israel is dominated by Rome, and it's surrounded on three sides uh, by purely uh, Gentile cultures. And so in the Jewish mind, um, that meant this is a place of, of darkness and oppression and the, the hopeless Gentile worldview that is constantly being pushed on them. And all of that stood in stark contrast to the Jewish hope in God and Messiah and resurrection and all of that. So this was known as a place not of literal darkness. It's actually one of the most beautiful places in Israel. Uh, but, but it's a place of sort of spiritual darkness. And the rest of Israel would have looked at this region and said, yeah, that's, they, they need to be liberated. This is a dark place. Uh, and so not only that, uh, but because all the trade routes come through here, you have to imagine that this is a time when there is no Twitter, um, there's, there's no internet, there's no nightly news, n- none of that. And so news um, traveled with goods on international highways. So if you were to do something remarkable in Galilee, um, look where that news is headed. It, it, it's headed everywhere. And so Jesus comes kind of down the hill, so to speak, into this new region and begins preaching a message that is going to change the world. Uh, Not only that, there are over 300,000 people living in this little bubble at that time in some 200 different cities and towns. So there's tons of people. Uh, It's a highly mobile place, and it's a great place to begin this movement. Uh, But the interesting thing about it is that Galilee is kind of the antithesis of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem is this high and lofty city. It's where the temple is and the religious elite. And everyone who's expecting Messiah is expecting that he would show up in Jerusalem and begin his movement there. Uh, instead, he's going into this place of um, Gentiles in darkness, and, and uh, this just by the location that he begins his ministry, uh, he, he's kind of forcing people to adjust their expectations as to what the Messiah is like. You, you have all these preconceived notions, but it's not going to happen the way that you think it will. Uh, so, and it's not only the location that's causing people to shift their expectations and and all of these crowds are now being alerted to this, coming to Jesus. Um, He's also preaching a profound and simple message. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has come near or it's at hand, it's close. Uh, And this simple message would have had a profound effect on uh, its listeners. And here's why. The Jewish people were steeped in thousands of years worth of prophecy about their Messiah or their rescuer or their redeemer uh, who was going to free Israel and usher in the kingdom of God. And there was tremendous anticipation for this individual to show up. It was a well-defined hope. But the issue was that different groups of people emphasized different aspects of prophecy and this long-awaited Messiah. So the expectations surrounding Messiah were all over the map. Here is um, Donald Gowan's summary of Jewish expectations at this time in history. This is what they were thinking. God must transform the human person, give a new heart and a new spirit. God must transform human society 
restore Israel to the promised land, rebuild cities, and make Israel's new status a witness to the nations. And God must transform nature, or the cosmos, itself. This was the role of Messiah. This is what they were anticipating. This is what it means for the kingdom of God to come. So with all these expectations, uh, the, the people were thinking, most of the people were thinking, when Messiah shows up, he's going to usher in all of this stuff in a really quick, almost violent uh, fashion. If you go to the next slide, uh, the Jews expected that we have creation in the time of the Old Testament as they're waiting for that arrival. Uh, and they believed, okay, when the Messiah comes, this will be the end of the age, God's judgment on our enemies, and the resurrection of the dead to, to then dwell with God in eternity. And, and so when Jesus says, hey, I'm the Messiah, and the kingdom of God is near, th this is what they're thinking. This would have been their initial reaction. Uh, it, God is going to decisively act in history and bring judgment and restoration to the world. And it's because of this uh, framework that a lot of, uh, of Jesus' thoughts and actions then became very confusing. Because this was the expectation. And, and so the, the root of the confusion with the religious elite and a lot of Jesus' followers and even his disciples, it, it all comes down to the meaning of the kingdom of heaven, or sometimes referred to as the kingdom of God. So people are trying to figure out, what, what does that mean? Because they had a very clear idea of what they thought the kingdom of God was. So, so we have to start by asking that question, what do we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? Are, are we talking about the place that you go when you die? Because we call that heaven. Is that, is that the kingdom of heaven? Is that what we're talking about? Are, are we talking about the, the future place where Jesus will rule and reign in, in new creation? Is that the kingdom of heaven or, or, or is it something else? And, and as Jesus' ministry progresses, we see that this concept of the kingdom of heaven is a little more fluid than the original Jewish audience would have assumed. Uh, here's just a few snapshots, little quotes of conversations that Jesus is having about the kingdom of heaven. Then the mother uh, of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Does, does this sound like a, like a present reality or a future reality? Future. This, this is a future reality that they're anticipating. The kingdom of heaven is not yet here, but when it gets here, I, I have some thoughts on where I'd like my boys to sit. Okay, here's another snapshot. This is Jesus with the Pharisees. It says, once, when being asked by the Pharisees or the religious elite when the kingdom of God would come, have that image in your mind, what are they picturing? Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is in your midst. 
Does that sound like a, a future reality or a present reality? Present. It's right now. It is in your midst. We're doing way better with the questions this week. <laughs> Last week was rough. I don't know what that was. Uh, and, and, and so it, it's, it's both, it looks like this future eternal place in some cases, but then it's also curiously uh, among us. So there's this strange duality of language when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven. So which is it? Is it this not yet longing for God to usher in a new age? Or is it right now here and among us? And, and I'll answer that one for you. Because we believe the answer is yes. It, it, that, it, that it's both. That, that the kingdom of God is now and not yet. And, and the Pharisees and the, the Jewish community, they were acutely aware of the not yetness of the kingdom. Are, are you kidding me? The kingdom of God is so far away from us right now. We're being, we're being oppressed by yet another foreign power. We're sitting in darkness. Our, our, we're in shambles. Like, this is the world. It's not yet here. The kingdom of God it is a million miles away. And so they're saying it's a million miles away, but it's going to slam into earth like a, like a meteor. In, in a flash, in an instant, God is going to usher in his kingdom. And, and so when Jesus comes and he says, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's near, the, the Jews would have been, spiritually speaking, like watching the sky for the meteor, okay? Like brace yourself. If this is Messiah, here comes judgment and resurrection. So you got you buckle up, you get ready for this. The world as we know it is about to radically change. That's what the Jews would have thought. But it, it didn't. At least not in the way that they thought it would. And, and yet in and through the person of Jesus, something is unmistakably new and different. Something from God is being unleashed on the world. So what can we say about the kingdom of God? What, what is it? How do we describe it? The kingdom of God, uh, simply put, is anywhere that God rules and reigns. Where does God rule and reign? Well, it will happen most clearly, most unequivocally in the age to come, in the new creation, in the new heavens, in the new earth. The Jews had their theology right on that. It was just their timing that was off. And no one could blame them for, for this difference because they were just reading Old Testament prophecy and trying to imagine what this would be like. Uh, but this is kind of the picture of reality that we get through the lens of the New Testament. We see creation and the fall, the entire period covered by the Old Testament, and then the Messiah arrives, but not as the meteor ushering in resurrection in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, but rather ushering in this new covenant period of the New Testament, which includes today, and now we are in this in-between time of waiting for the Messiah to return, and the exact same things that the Jews are waiting for, for God's judgment and, and the end of evil, of all spiritual powers and authorities that stand against God, and the resurrection of God's children into the new heavens and the new earth, so that his kingdom will come in full. But, but you see how confusing that would have been to have the Jewish lens uh, set alongside this one as they're listening to Jesus and trying to figure out how is this going to happen and what's going to happen next.
But the, the kingdom of God and the rulership of God is any place where God's will is done. And there's nothing but that in the age to come. Uh, it, but there's a lot of that also available to us right here and right now. And, and if that's true, if that last chart we just showed is, is if that's the correct model and way of thinking about things, um, then Jesus, Jesus hasn't come to end the age and usher in God's full judgment and restoration as they were anticipating. But... On the other hand, Jesus hasn't just come to talk about the kingdom that is to come. He's come to bring it. And so Jesus is going to engage in in what I like to think of as a bit of show and tell in his ministry. he's He's going to talk about the kingdom. And the words that he uses to describe the kingdom are incredibly important. As we get into the new year, uh, we're going to do an entire series just on Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' sort of kingdom manifesto. He's talking about the kingdom, and then he's going to kind of flesh it out. Here's what life in the kingdom is like. Here's what it looks like for the kingdom of heaven to break into this age right here and right now. Um, This is... This is lecturing and speaking and preaching, but it's not only that. You're also going to see the kingdom of God coming. You're going to sense it. There's going to be signs that accompany it. So uh, the first thing that we notice about the inbreaking kingdom of God uh, is that it's now and not yet. That it's breaking into this reality uh, and will come in full one day. But, but no sooner does Jesus start publicly preaching about the kingdom, uh, he, he seeks out followers to partner with him in seeing his kingdom come. And immediately we see that, that this inbreaking kingdom requires our participation. This is the account that we read. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon and Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting their net in the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets, their family business, everything familiar, the work they'd probably been doing since they were 12 years old, and they followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, and Jesus calls them as well, and they follow him. Now, uh, it's important to know, I used to always wonder when I read this, like, did they really, like, did they really not know who Jesus is? Um, it, it, and just drop everything and kind of follow this strange guy? Uh, in reality, they, they knew who Jesus was. And if you read through the gospel accounts, um, likely all of these guys had had interactions with Jesus a year before um, through the experience of baptism and all of that. Uh, several of these, these guys that we read about had been John's disciples, and so, and John clearly knew who the Messiah was and was paving the way for him. And so they would have been in that context of, hey, I'm a disciple of John, but he was pointing forward to Jesus. And, and so over the course of that year, many of them were probably at the wedding that you're familiar with, where Jesus turned water into wine. They would have had all these things going in their mind. Here's the Messiah. We're not supposed to follow John anymore. We're actually kind of supposed to follow this guy. And maybe even anticipating that one day they would be invited into that. 
Uh, but still, even with all of that in the background, their immediate response is remarkable. Um, they leave their livelihoods, the family business, the social connections that they had enjoyed. Uh, and we always t tend to talk about these guys as if they were poor fishermen, right? Because it's beautiful that he takes poor fishermen and turns them into these culture-shaping, kingdom-building guys. Um, in reality, uh, they have a boat and all of this equipment, and, and this would have been an incredible privilege in this day and age, uh, and a really amazing family business to have. And so these guys, they're, they're not walking away from a job at Arby's, okay? Like, can you imagine that playing out in the gospel? Like, hey, welcome to Arby's, may I take your order? And he's like, uh, yeah, i just wondering if you just want to drop everything you're doing here and just come follow me. He's like, uh, sorry, sir, I, I'm not sure who you are. And what? He's like, oh, it, it's okay. You, you'll be comfortable with it. I'm going to go ahead and pull up to the next window, but start packing your stuff. Like, we're, we're going to get out of here. And, and the guy's back there thinking, well, I'm making nine an hour right now. I guess, I guess, I guess I'll pack my stuff. Like, I don't really want to be here at the second window at Arby's. And he, you know? Like, that, that's kind of how we, that's kind of how we visualize this. Like, yeah, he's a, you're a poor fisherman. Like, you got nothing better to do. You might as well go and follow Jesus. Um, that's not actually what's happening here. Um, they're leaving behind something very well known and potentially very lucrative in order to follow Jesus. And so what we see displayed here is actually the authority of Jesus is, is, as the anointed messianic king. When, when he calls us to something, we obey. And, and so this, this man um, had, had a different type of authority that commanded obedience. He, he didn't have political power. He didn't have wealth. He didn't have armies. And, and yet these men were, were unquestioningly obedient to him. They sense another type of, of authority completely. Uh, and so this is part of Jesus' kingdom movement. It's going to involve crowds, which we'll see in a moment, uh, and, and that's important. But it also involves a, a contingent of committed followers who say, Jesus, your call and your will trumps everything else in my life. Everything. Y your power and your authority matter more than any other thing. We'll follow you anywhere. And, and in fact, the, the kingdom of God in this age requires our participation. It, it actually requires disciples who are willing to take up that mentality. So the kingdom of God, uh, to kind of recap, is, is breaking into this reality. It's available to us on some level in the here and the now. Uh, and this movement of God requires our participation in order to move forward. And finally, the kingdom of God manifests itself in freedom from darkness as God's will is actually done in real time. Jesus is going to talk about the kingdom. And as I mentioned, those words will be important ones. They will shape cultures for millennia to come. Uh, but notice this is more than words. Jesus' power and authority and even the nature of the kingdom of God uh, actually have an effect on the reality around us. Things begin to change in real time. We actually see the kingdom breaking in. We sense it in our midst. This is what it says starting in verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, which is important, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, incredibly important, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. 
Not some of them. Every. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. All of them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Jesus' ministry explodes. He goes from relative obscurity to region-wide fame. Why? Because people aren't just coming to hear about the kingdom. They're seeing God's kingdom break into reality. The healing of diseases and severe pain and demon possession and seizures and paralysis. All sorts of stuff. People are being freed from inner demonic stuff and finding emotional freedom and spiritual freedom. People are finding physical healing and freedom from all sorts of problems affecting the material body. Atoms and and molecules are being rearranged. Cancer cells are spontaneously dying and being flushed out of the system. Things are literally being reshaped by the Spirit of God. The the oppression of the human soul is being lifted. This is what happens where God's kingdom comes and God's will is done. And it will happen on a massive scale uh, when, at the end of the age when Jesus returns. In, in the full-on kingdom of heaven where God rules and reigns, this is going to happen to everyone. But it's also uh, happening right now on a smaller scale through Jesus and through his followers in the power of the Holy Spirit. They're getting taste of what that future kingdom is going to be like. Jesus has the power and authority to transform simple followers into kingdom participants that partner with him powerfully for the transformation and redemption of the world. And Jesus himself is showing that he's effective enough to meet every human need in in every form and fashion, body, soul, spirit, all of it. So as we close, um, just a really simple question. Um, how, do, how do we engage in all of this? Like, where do we enter into the story? First, in response, um, we recognize that we live in a land of darkness and that Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light shining into our darkness, swallowing up the shadow of death itself that stalks humanity. And there are people all around us that we're going to encounter later today and tomorrow and the next day who are, whether they know it or not, they are starving for that kingdom. They're starving for that light. They're starving for that hope. Because there's no other place that they can find it. And so the world uh, out there uh, is going to perish without the light of the world, without Jesus' involvement. And, And we would too. Jesus is the light. Secondly, the most appropriate response to that light is to repent and to follow after Jesus. And so we come to Jesus in repentance as that simple one-line message that repent and enter the kingdom. So we're emptying ourselves of all of that other stuff and we're coming to Jesus empty and open-handed and saying, Jesus, I want to be filled with you and your Holy Spirit and your kingdom. And if you haven't been baptized, we would love to baptize you as a part of that process. And then we follow him. 
wherever he calls, recognizing his full power and authority. We say, Jesus, you are the Messianic King. Whatever the time, whatever the place, whatever the cost, we are now your followers. We will follow after you. As we stand here, uh, my wife and I have given up our jobs. We've given up our careers. Um, we've forsaken the right to choose which city that city we live in or how much money we make. Um, and we've just said, here, Jesus, all of that is up to you. Call us wherever you want. Do whatever you want. Your call matters more than our dreams. Why? Because we want, that we want to see his kingdom come. We want to participate in this movement. And not all of us are going to be called to give up all of that stuff. Most of us won't. But some of us will. And, and all of us need to carry that mentality, that, that open-handed, Jesus, you have authority over my life. And, and if we all do that as, as, a team, as a church planting team, if we do that, things are going to start to happen. And, and Jesus is going to use that mentality. And he's going to do things in us and among us and through us that we could never dream of on our own. We empty ourselves. Jesus, you have. We follow you. We mimic the first disciples in their heart posture. We've been thinking about it. We've been learning about it. We're anticipating the call. What, what, about, what about now? What's next, Jesus? What's today? And finally, if we're doing all of that, recognizing Jesus is the light and that we live in darkness, that we are now repenting regularly and following after him, being filled with him, finally, we should expect to see God's kingdom come in our lives, in our church, and in our city. As we empty ourselves, as we ask for more of God and the Holy Spirit, if you have a whole bunch of open-handed participants filled with the Spirit, understanding that God wants to unleash His kingdom in the darkness and on this world, then things are going to start to happen. His kingdom will come. The hungry will be fed. The hopeless will find hope. The lost will be found. The oppressed will find freedom. The addicted will will find release from their addiction. The sick will find healing. All sorts of healing from all sorts of stuff. God can raise the dead if he wants to. And one day he will. And so we live our lives in this pattern, being filled with the Spirit, um, repentantly submitting to Jesus, regularly discerning with increasing clarity, God, what is your will? What is your will for me? What is your will for my family? What is your will for this city and this church? That, that, that's what this is all about. That's why we open the scriptures every week. That, that's what we're doing here. We, we study the scriptures and we say, Jesus, who are you? What are you like? God, what are you like? And what is your will? So we're, we're discerning that. We're learning to grow in, in figuring out what that, what that looks like in intimacy with God. God, God, where is this all headed? What, what is your future kingdom going to be like? You see that? We're studying the scriptures. We're trying to figure out all of those things. And then we're turning the corner. Uh, we're studying and learning and growing. And then we turn the corner and we say, okay, God, we want that now. We don't want to wait till a kingdom comes in full. We want all of that stuff now. We want your heart for the broken and lost in the city to be unleashed right now. 
So there's a studying and there's a praying and there's an asking and there's a doing and an active participation moment by moment. And we don't always know what we should want, right? We don't always naturally engage in all this stuff. We actually, on our own, um, don't naturally know how to live the spiritual life. We don't even really know what we should pray for most of the time. And so Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, we've been seeing some crazy stuff. Like, you, you, gotta, you gotta tell us what's going on. Like, what's, what's your, how do, you, how do you pray? Jesus says, okay, I'll teach you how to pray. This is how you should pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and will be in the future. We want that now. So we take all of that stuff that we've been learning. This is who God is. This is his heart for the broken and the lost. This is what his will is. This is what his future kingdom will be like. God, now your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not a thousand years from now. Like right now. And tonight and tomorrow and next month. Next year in 2017. We say, here I am, God. I am ready to participate in seeing your kingdom come in all of its beauty, in all of its glory, in all of its counterintuitive grace. And we want to see healing and we want to see salvation and we want to see restoration and we want to see freedom inside and outside in every realm of human existence. We want to see your glory and your freedom and your kingdom come in our lives and in our church and in our city. And and, and the harder we press into that as a community, the more we're going to see. It won't come all at once, but you're going to say, all of a sudden, I'm waking up to the fact that it's in our midst and, and it's happening. Let's pray.